before we start this episode, just a really quick mention from the people who pay our bills, HubSpot. So here's the question. Ever wondered what unicorns eat for breakfast? Sometimes, actually. Yeah, I'm thinking something like Lucky Charms, Candy Floss, some kind of soup. Something horny. Well, actually, we don't know. But what we do know is that 20% of unicorn startups are using HubSpot, and for good reason. Yes, HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales software and support. Plus, they have a huge collection of resources to help startups scale. And with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save big on your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, visit HubSpot.com slash startups. Yeah, and, and you know, I I have definitely had had our soul days as a as a boss, as a manager. Without doubt, none of us are perfect, we're all human. Hello and welcome to the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast brought to you by HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. My name is Al and I'm a business owner. My name's Leanne. I'm a business psychologist that specializes in building high-performing cultures. I'm feeling that I should have a specialist, specialism. <laughs> I need to go back and re-record that. So why my name's Al and I'm amazing. No, that's not really a specialism, is it? You are amazing. The reason, and before we said that, we're here to help you simplify the science of people. Sorry. But the reason for that is that we had, we've had some misunderstanding as to what I do the last couple of weeks. People thinking that I do some kind of consumer psychology and that is not it. I'm all about building businesses through people. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why we, we had a big long chat over a gin and tonic the other night and we were like, okay, this is your new tagline on the, on the, on the pod. Yeah. Recruitment engagement culture. That's me. Yep. R-E-M. <laughs> I don't think that's taken. <laughs> yeah, I think it might have been taken out of time. So uh, today we're talking about how not to be an asshole boss. Now there is some already some contention around this because we are Brits, so we say asshole. Whereas I think all of our guests are either North American, so they're either American or Canadian, and they say asshole. Asshole versus arsehole. Get in touch, listener. Tell us which one you prefer. <laughs> maybe you're from North America and you just fancy saying arsehole. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. You see us Brits, we have bad food, bad to- teeth, but we are good at saying words, arsehole. <laughs> can you imagine just someone taking that completely out of context and, and just playing me going, arsehole. Anyway, <laughs> I think we've... My concern was we're going to say it too much this this episode, and I've already said it about eight times, so we'll just we'll move on. We'll <laughs> if you listened last week and you are playing that responsible drinking game, good luck to you, friends. <laughs> so our first guest is Susan Hobson from Elite per High Performance. She runs a network of elite coaches from around the world who help leaders to unleash their highest passion. Hi, everyone. I'm Susan Hobson. I am the CEO and founder of Elite High Performance Coaching, We are a science-based coaching practice here in Canada. We actually now, in the last year, have coaches from every part of the globe. So, But uh, I've been doing this whole high-performance mindset coaching thing for about 15 years. Uh, I was a high-performance athlete. This is sort of where I first got exposed to this whole concept of mindset, and it was such a game-changer. I had to come out of those gates on my mission to bring this to high achievers everywhere. Our second guest is Rob Kalvarovsky, who works with Susan and also hosts the Leadership Launchpad podcast. Rob's background is mining and engineering, and not only has he had his fair share of arsehole bosses, but he's caught himself being a bit of an arsehole himself from time to time. I'm Rob Kalvarovsky. I'm a high-performance leadership coach and... Similar to Susan, I was a Canadian junior national team water polo player. I am a 
graduate of MIT in mechanical engineering. I spent 10 years in heavy industry. And through working in heavy industry, I met a lot of asshole bosses and I worked for a few. Um, and it led to a lot of the mental health challenges that I struggled with. And as I started pivoting into leadership coaching, I started learning about what leadership could be and how people could feel and some of the gaps that a lot of leaders have that it's not their fault. They just have these behaviors that they've learned over their life. Our third guest is the world-renowned PJ Brady, who describes himself as an accidental author and speaker, but he created this brave, smart, kind framework. There's an accompanying book for it. And it helps businesses from 10 employees to 10,000 to uncover both company and individual values. PJ Brady, father of three little girls who dabbles in leadership, uh, speaking and, and coaching. And uh, yeah, I'm the owner of the Brace Mark Kind Company, which I started several years ago when I started to notice that there was a significant need for values-based leadership, especially with entrepreneurs, especially with business owners to say, if you can get a lot of your own stuff right, you know who you are, you know how you succeed, you know how you fail a lot of the rest of the parts of your business go fall into place too. And finally, we have Duncan So, a thought leader from Canada. He is also an engineer turned clinician and famous for his advanced thinking around how technology and leadership can improve companies and prevent disengagement. I'm Duncan So, and I run the Burnout Recovery Accelerator, what was once used to be called the Burnout Clinic. Um, and I focus on helping executives and uh, workplaces recover from burnout. So before we hear more from our four guests, let's get to my, my favorite time of the week. It is the News Roundup Week with the amazing Leanne Elliott, business psychologist. Hello, Leanne. Cue the jingle. <laughs> I love the jingle. Me too. I might, I might change it this week, actually. I think you should. I, I like the kind of jaunty one from week one. It's all a bit serious. But anyway, new word. Go on. Rage applying. Oh, rage applying. What do you think? Um, I think it's good. And I think also what is the first word of the week that actually, I un I think I understand what it is. Please. Well, I would imagine that you that you have a bad day and you go, right, fuck this shit. <laughs> I'm going to go and apply for another job. So you're in, in a rage, you go and apply for five different jobs. Pretty much, yeah. And it'll usually be, be, be triggered by by something that your boss says or your co-worker says, something just pushes you over the edge. So you get on your laptop and you start applying furiously, uh, rage applying. Um, it's kind of considered a bit of an extension from quiet quitting. And I think we talked about this in our quiet quitting episode that, you know, quiet quitting is is not going to, people like the, like the backlash was that, oh, that's not sustainable for your career and you're going to suffer. Mm. Yeah, of course, but people aren't going to stay in that state forever. Um, so yeah, arguably the next state is rage applying where people will respond to all sorts of jobs in a very short period of time um, in a bit of a scattergun approach. But yes, a word of warning around again, these scattergun applications. And this is from somebody who has been in in the recruitment world or recruitment adjacent for 15 years. Talent acquisition is the fancy word I'll mm -hmm. quite rightly use. Um, I guess a couple of things if you are that person. One, remember that six-month rule. A lot of organizations won't allow you to apply for other roles in, until that six-month time period is up from the last unsuccessful application. Um, so if you've not put a lot, a lot of effort into that application, it doesn't go through. That might then cut off your chances for that company for a little while. Um, and also bear in mind, a lot of organizations use recruiters. Um, and if you're applying to different organizations, but it's kind of going to the same recruitment consultant, 
consultancy, they're going to really question what your intention is in terms of applying for roles because you're applying for different roles with different salaries with different expertise. Um, it could really potentially um, kind of have a really negative impact on your own uh, professional brand. So just be careful. Secondly, this week, did you hear about the Gary Lineker scandal? I did, I did. Now, it may be those, maybe across the pond, they haven't heard because Gary Lineker's British and it all happened in the British Broadcast Corporation, the BBC. It really did. It's, um, it, yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, so Gary Lineker, English, uh, former professional footballer, played for the Premier League clubs, Leicester, Everton um, and Tottenham Hotspurs, also played for England and Barcelona. Um, he's currently sports broadcaster of Match of the Day, which is the main football soccer programme on the BBC. Um, and he's been the host since the late 1990s, so a long time. He was suspended from his job with the BBC because he tweeted about the government's new immigration policy being akin to something out of 1930s Nazi Germany. Um, now, we're not here for the politics. But the point is, and you might be wondering, why would somebody be suspended from a job for having quite liberal left views? Well, the point is is the BBC is meant to be neutral. um, And the BBC said that that had broken editorial guidelines on impartiality. Now, staff at the BBC lost their shit over this, (laughs) including big names, big TV personalities. Nobody would host the show. Nobody would step in for Gary. Um, And it's the first time since 1964 the show went on air with no hosts and no commentary. So people, people kick back. So you might be wondering, Leanne, why is this a people and culture issue? Well, the thing is, the reason this all got completely blown out the proportion are a few issues that stem back to people and culture. So first, a psychological contract arguably has been broken between members of staff at the BBC, including Gary Lineker and BBC leadership. Very briefly, BBC values include trust, respect, accountability. We are one BBC. They actually say on their website, more than just words on a page, our values set out what we stand for and inform everything we do. Marvellous. Yet bear in mind, the current BBC chairman, Richard Sharp, is currently facing growing calls to resign following allegations that he helped secure an £800,000 loan for Boris Johnson, former Prime Minister of the Conservative UK government. And fairly famous right right of centre politician. Indeed. And this was before he took up the role in January 2021, uh, having been recommended by the then PM, Mr. Johnson, uh, for his appointment approval by a committee of MPs. Hold on one second. So what you're saying is that this dude here, Richard Sharp, (laughs) helped Boris Johnson get an £800,000 loan. (laughs) And then Boris Johnson went, oh, do you know what? We've got a job going at the BBC, which is the head of BBC. Would you like it? (laughs) Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, cheeky. So this whole one BBC. Mm -hmm. And then you also have to ask that, you know, if it's impartiality, would Gary Lineker have been suspended for backing the immigration policy by the UK mm. government? Because that would have been the same argument, impartiality. I doubt it, personally. Um, so I think that's the thing. It, it's calling into question this lack of integrity and accountability around leadership. And again, this incongruence drives us mad. Equally, staff from the BBC came forward with stories of being disciplined for their views, expressing their views on social media, where other kind of the big stars like Gary Lineker have been let off in the past. And this points to huge inequities in organisational justice. So that's how organisations are made around, around people in terms of promotion, in terms of pain, in terms of treatment. And that is essential to psychological safety. And then in turn, innovation and creativity. And creativity is another BBC value. So this whole thing has been blown out of proportion 
because there are deeper rooted issues here in terms of organizational culture. And this might sound familiar to any business owners or leaders who feel like they're constantly firefighting or they make one small policy change and everyone goes up in arms. It's probably not that change. It's probably not that thing that's just happened. It's probably just a sign of some much more deep-rooted issues in your culture that you really need to need to start to deal with. But yeah, Gary Lineker has since been reinstated at the BBC. He's also called out social media users uh, for the, the abuse they gave him and his son, George Lineker, um, in reaction to the matter. Um, and he's also publicly reported that to Elon Musk at Twitter. Speaking of Elon Musk and arsehole buses. Uh-oh, what's he done now? <laughs> you must know what he's I do know now. what he's done. The Icelandic, uh, my Icelandic guy. Yeah, so Halle Thorleifsson, I think that's how you say it. Halle, I apologise if you are by chance listening and I, I said that incorrectly. Uh, but he joined Twitter when the company was acquired. Um, his startup company was acquired by Twitter in 2021. Um, and that was then under under co-founder and CEO Jack Dorsey. What a guy, eh? Can comparison. Um, so yeah, he was celebrated massively in the media in Iceland, um, where he lives. Um, and he actually chose to receive the purchase price as salary rather than a lump sum. So he could pay higher taxes in his country to support public services. Goodness. This is the kind of guy Halley is. So amid the mass layoffs at Twitter, um, second round of them, um, he went nine days without knowing if he had a job or not. He'd been locked out of his system, but had no idea. So in the end, he he treated Musk himself. Um, Elon Musk then decided to publicly troll um, this person um, who just simply wanted to know if they still had a job. Uh, he told the employee to justify their work, posted laughing emojis to his responses, um, and also memes when uh, when to, to some of the answers that, that Hallie gave. So I didn't um, see that. Yeah, proper arsehole move. I did see this. It did feel that that Halley came off as the bigger guy, as the person who was just like going, look, this is what I'm doing. And Elon just was like a child, wasn't he? I mean, I, I don't think... A petulant child. petulant child, yes. I don't think he... I think if I remember someone, he doesn't drink, but I know he smokes. So maybe he'd had a little... Uh, a little recreational cigarette before he uh, before he tweeted. Maybe, but that conversation took a turn for the worse uh, when Musk concluded uh, that Halley did no actual work at Twitter and they had used an excuse that he had a disability that prevented him from typing. Um, yeah, Halley does um, have a disability, um, but that is, and it's called muscular dystrophy, um, which is a degenerative disease. Um, but he's also in a team that rarely requires typing um, and has actually, you know, been doing his job more than more than well for a number of years is it illegal sadly no it's not um but another asshole move absolutely and very bad for business yep so there's there's the lesson don't token tweet if you're uh, if you're mr musk because you're going to end up being sued for an awful lot of money okay so shall we get stuck in yes okay so i think everyone has had an asshole boss there's that meme with the guy who's saying, I'm going to have to get you to stay over the weekend. You know, he's got braces. You know the guy from Office Space, I think it is the movie, um, who's just basically an arsehole boss. Then there's like on TV, there's uh, there's the boss from Fight Club who's an absolute arsehole. Then there's Bob Kelso from Scrubs, universally disliked. But the main questions we were interested in is, how do they get like that? And do they even know they're an arsehole? Is it like being stupid is, and dead? Like you don't know you're dead. Why are you the way you are? <laughs> <laughs> One of our favourite things from uh, from the office, funnily enough. Um, who I, I that's another example of a of a 
questionable, but I guess. Exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah, so, so we asked them, how do they get like that? And do they even know they're an arsehole boss? Are all arsehole bosses even that easy to spot? So we spoke to Rob first and Rob doesn't think so. When we think of an asshole boss, typically what we're thinking of is these arrogant and violent bosses, these folks who they're going to make demands, they think that they're the greatest thing since sliced bread, you know, they're going to verbally or physically abuse their employees to get what they want. And actually, the data shows that that's not as co- as common as we think. It's only around 5.5% of the workforce actually experiences those bosses. Now, if we expand it to just what what bosses are destructive to their folks or to their workplace, it's around 65.1% of leaders. And so destructive leadership is actually experienced by basically two-thirds of the workforce. And what that can be can be anything from a boss who's messy, doesn't really understand what they're supposed to do, doesn't really set clear expectations or deadlines or goals anywhere to someone who's like an abusive narcissist who's, you know, basically claiming credit for everything and, you know, denying that they've ever done anything wrong and anywhere in between. I don't think it's a coincidence that about two thirds of managers are destructive in their behaviours and about two thirds of our workforces are disengaged. I'm not sure this is a coincidence, Alan. I think we should learn more about that. Mm. But I think what's really interesting about what Rob said there is it's, you know, it's not necessarily about, you know, being an arsehole boss isn't just about being abusive or um, you know, verbally or being a narcissist. It's actually, you know, really destructive to be a, a very laissez-faire leader in terms of, you know, you crack on, you do it, and, you know, you do you, hun. Um, also isn't, isn't what employees want. It's not what we want in work. We need those expectations. Uh, we need those boundaries. Uh, we need that support. Yeah, and I think you've got to ask yourself, does this, does this narcissism, all this kind of thing, does it come from insecurity? Like, do they have this massive imposter syndrome? Uh, maybe they're scared. Maybe they don't know what they're doing. Susan's got a thought on this. I feel like the asshole boss falls more on the 1.0 side of that fence. Whereas we, we talk about leadership 1.0 as being the old school management, not leadership style that was born in the industrial era. So this is the leader who has power over rather than awakening the power within. This is the leader that leads with fear. They're commanding control. And we know that that is what creates the toxicity in those cultures. I think the interesting thing about about narcissistic people or narcissistic bosses is it's a very it's a very defined personality and way of thinking so things like insecurity imposter syndrome aren't even going to be in their vocabulary I think it's more the people that are maybe looking up at Susan said at these these more um you know leaders that were maybe maybe more boomer maybe more older gen x but only simply because we tend to learn our leadership styles from the people who have led us or what is kind of the social norm within the work environments. And that has shifted massively in the past kind of 15 years or so and certainly more uh, accelerated over the past few years. I think we're seeing, you know, I think insecurity, yes, and ruling with fear is is an ineffective leadership style, um, but also being more passive is an ineffective leadership style. Um, you know, so I think it's it's 
It's whether you are leading people for the first time or leading people and not really had that support around your own development as a leader, as a manager. Um, there might just be some misunderstanding here in terms of the actual leadership behaviours that are effective. Yeah, and I think as PJ explains, like this is down to the values of the individual leader. Like if your values, if you've borrowed your values from Gordon Gecko, probably not a great example, but borrowed it from someone from the 80s like uh, Jack Welch perhaps, um, who wrote, who did lead with fear, um, then, you know, potentially those are the sort of values that make you become the leader you are. So PJ explains a bit more about this and how it comes back to childhood sometimes. When I go into businesses and we talk values, it's with 30, 40, 50 year olds who haven't had this conversation before. And every time I talk to them, we trace the roots of their values back to childhood. We, we trace it back to their childhood. And if we know that values are established at a young age, why aren't we teaching values? Like the goal of a lot of schools is we need to get good grades so that from the standardized testing, we show up at this level at this whatever. All right, well, if that's what you're getting measured on, that's where people are going to put their efforts. That's true in business too, right? If anything that you measure gets accomplished. Yeah, values. Values are essentially a social construct and any social construct is formed in our child. It's like we were talking about gender roles. You know, that might be a, a value of, of yours in terms of how men and women operate in the world. Um you know, I'm thinking of, of what's your man who's now in jail. Sad story. Andrew Tate. Some of his values, I'm sure, are rooted in his in, in his charters, as, as all of us are. Um, so, yeah, it makes complete sense to me that if we're looking for these shifts, then we need to be, you know, looking at that systemic change at a much younger age in, in terms of, of how we're educated. And I think as well, you know, with those, those values, bearing in mind then that if we're reassessing our values as we get older... And we're starting to to find that our values that we want to hold personally are very different from the external world or environment that we're in. There is going to be this clash and there is going to be this resistance. And we don't like confrontation. And as a leader, that can be very difficult to manage that, that confrontation and that change um, effectively. And it can, you know, lead to then some of these more destructive leadership um, behaviors being used. So let's hear a bit more from Rob as he explains a bit more about two types of destructive leadership. Destructive leadership basically gets divided into two forms. One is active and one is passive. It's not that you are actively going out there going, hey, I want to be an asshole today and I'm going to punish my people, right? Often, and the statistic from Dr. Tasha Yurik says that 95% of people think they're self-aware when only 12% actually are. And so if we think about it this way, there's around 80% of folks who literally have no self-awareness and we're just flying blind in the world because it's not that you want to be a bad person. No one ever sat in their career and was like, you know, hey, where do you want to be in five years? I want to be the greatest asshole of all time. Yeah. It's, as a child, you know, the teacher sits at the front of the room and tells you what to do. And then you go into sports and your coach says, do this. Right. And so it's not your fault. And so on a passive side, often the behaviors or the categories that we would call destructive leaders in a passive sense are messy bosses, they're cowardly bosses, and they're passive aggressive or passive egocentric bosses. I think we've all been a bit of an arsehole sometimes, haven't we? 
I know when I had my first business, it was beer delivery company. Um, if you want to hear the full story, then spin back about 10 episodes to around about Christmas time. And there's my, my story there. It's ridiculous. Um, and I was so stressed and we're working through the night and then the printer stopped working. This is a laser printer. This is going 20 years ago. This laser printer stopped working. So I genuinely took it out to the car park and kicked it around the car park with all, all my staff looking through the window at me going, what the heck is he doing? Um, so yes, it, I think that like like Rob says, there's no one sets out to be an asshole, but it's just down to those either the external factors or just being too passive or too aggressive or perhaps this brave, smart, kind idea that PJ brought up. Yeah, and and you know, I I have definitely had had asshole days as a as a boss as a manager, without doubt. None of us are perfect; we're all human. And I think mine is maybe mine came from kind of like I had a new member of staff on. I was really excited about the you know the skills that we could leverage from them. And I was, but it was, it was kind of mid-month, lots of things going on, target-driven role, just needs to get this done. This person's coming in, they're doing this, they're doing that. It's going to help you in this way. Marvellous. Let's all celebrate and, and go about our day. Whereas because I'd made so many assumptions and decisions already in my head and pushed this solution onto my team, I got pushback. I got reaction. And we ended up chatting about it for about an hour and a half to come all full circle back round to the solution I was trying to implement in the first place. But we had to go through that process of discussion to get them fully on board with that fundamental change in their ways of working. And I understand it can feel like you don't have the time, um, but you'll, you'll save you'll save more time in the long run if you if you just have that conversation. That's what I learn anyway. So, so being aware that you're an asshole um, is probably one of the best things that you can do as an asshole boss. And it's and you don't have to say I am an asshole boss. You can have asshole moments, like Rob explains here. Actually, one time when I was the polo coach. I was putting the guys through a really hard workout and one of the guys on my team got up and got out of the pool during the swim set and went over to his bag. And I was walking down the pool deck and I was thinking of all the things I was going to yell at him for. And then he pulled a diabetes needle out of his bag. He was going to, he was diabetic and he needed an insulin shot. And that was like a screeching moment for me going, you know what, I'm an asshole, even though I'm not trying to be. Uh And those moments, we've all had them, right? But does that mean that I'm doomed to this? Rob's an asshole forever and I cannot change and I cannot be? No. Am I an asshole or am I trying really hard not to be an asshole? And I think the second one is where this kind of self-awareness comes from. Because you might be thinking, well, I'm not an arsehole. And if I am, I'm not doing it intentionally. Well, then are you intentional enough or aware enough in your behavior as a leader to stop these destructive or maladaptive behaviors from, from coming out in the first place? I don't think it's enough to go, oh, well, I'm, I'm not an arsehole. It's going, am I, am I actively trying not to be an arsehole in this moment and, and so many others? And I think that the difficulty that leaders have with this, as we know from, you know, our conversations that we've had um, in the past few episodes are around kind of stress and burnout, is that when we're under pressure, our brain chemistry changes and our, our behaviors that are strengths in the majority of situations, but can become weaknesses if they're they're over they're overenacted, it's hard for us, it's harder for us to moderate those behaviors during times of stress or fear or pain. And that's not just in the work environment. We know if we're if we're things haven't going on in our social life in terms of you know, health issues or our family, then then it's very hard for that not to impact our personal stress levels and in turn our own behaviours and moderate our own behaviours. 
Duncan explains this a little bit more. If you want to connect the systemic and the emotional sides, values is the glue. Because values at a deep level is how we operate, how we evaluate our time to be meaningful, just by definition. Right? And it's not some values that you have on the wall or projected or hallucinate. I mean, the values in which you were imprinted as a child, right, that you know neurologically, is how you want to spend your time and what's important to you. And so when you align to your values, and you can nerd out a little bit, is what we call neurological arousal. We're aroused, right? When we're aligned and turned in and tapped on and, and activated, right, and excited, we're turned on. And when we violate our values, which we call moral injury, uh, we feel tremendous amounts of pain as well. And so the, the challenge for the modern workplace and modern leaders is, you know, we have to come from a place now for Generation Z and all generations, to be honest, is let's have an honest conversation. Even one of our other guests, PJ, who is the most laid back and self-aware man in the world, he found himself being an asshole. I saw the lack of kindness in so many people. I treated other people unkindly too. And so when I started realizing what some of my superpowers were and the way that I could do it and to say, no, PJ, you're a smart dude. Just quit manipulating people with it. PJ, you're, you're a brave guy, but what you need to do is to not take... <laughs> Don't bet it all on one hand, PJ. <laughs> Maybe diversify your blackjack belts. Uh, it's just to say, quit risking things that you that you won't you don't want to lose. And as soon as I said, look, yeah, stop getting walked over, man. So I looked at my values, and then when I understood when I started to understand that I failed from those values because I I was just living them in the wrong way, it was such a quick switch to turn it on. To turn it in that positivity. And because I define them so well, I know when my values tip negative and they do. You get stressed. Stuff goes wrong in a day. Someone triggers you with the wrong word at the wrong time with a childhood trauma, whatever it is. There's reasons why we get mad. I know why I get mad. I know why I fail, which still means I, I still get mad. I still fail. I just get to recover from it so much quicker. So we've mentioned before that this feeling of pain or fear is a major way of becoming an asshole boss. But there's an idea that Leanne came up with, that leaders should be a filter for information. Leaders should be deciding how little or how much info to share. And Susan explains a bit more. I really have an appreciation for now how I coach leaders on this whole transparency piece and like how vulnerable to be, you know, because on the one hand, you definitely, you, you want to be transparent so people understand your decision-making process. But um, on the other and you also don't want to destabilize them by giving them too much of that information, which I sometimes can be guilty of. So I feel like that is something that I really connect with when I was watching uh, Rob's keynote there in Australia, right? I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, that is definitely an aspect of where I'm being a little bit toxic as a leader, right? Where I'm either not giving enough information or I'm giving too much. So that's something I'm knee deep in right now as a leader of our team and trying to calibrate and navigate. What Susan's kind of explained perfectly there is that, you know, even the behaviors that we would associate with effective leadership being transparent, if that behavior is overenacted or enacted in a context that isn't very productive, then that becomes an ineffective leadership behavior. It becomes a destructive leadership behavior. There is a difference between being transparent with your team and saying, look, these are the shifting expectations from senior leaders or this is the economic climate we're operating in and this is why some of these things are, are changing and it might you know, feel difficult. There's a difference between that adult-to-adult -adult conversation than kind of 
screeching into the office, throwing your bag down, go, oh my God, what a shit morning I've had. This happened and this happened. And John from blah, 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 you won't believe what he said, what we have to do now. And you're like, whoa, I've worked for many people that have done that. And that was what my manager, my manager, John, and if you're interested in, in my amazing manager mentor, John, I go back to my episode um, just before Christmas. Um, but he talked about hiding the wires. And this is exactly what it is. It's not, it's not kind of hiding everything from your teams. It's hiding the mess. It's hiding the noise. And it's just kind of being that filter that you're giving them the information that they need to empower them to do their job, to understand the context that they're working in and to learn um, but they don't need they don't need the information that's just going to put your added stress onto them. Quick announcement for all listeners. Yeah, I've got a I've got a new toy on my on my little deck thing, so I can make my voice change. Anyway, sorry. I Leanne. love it. Do it again. Hello, Leanne. Whoa! Do another one. Hello. <laughs> But we didn't interrupt your podcast listening for uh, for this. We actually interrupted it to tell you about one of our new favourite podcasts. It's called Success Story. It is hosted by Scott D. Clary. And it is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Success Story features question and answer sessions and conversations on sales, marketing, business, startups and entrepreneurship. Oh, and if you like this podcast, then I think you'll love Scott's episode in back in December where the infamous Seth Godin talks about empowering employees. So go listen to Success Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Exactly. That's why being a leader is hard. It's really hard. It's not a question of just being promoted until you, uh, at some, you're good at the actual technical side of it. You've got to be good at, at the actual empathy you've got to be good at managing people you've got to understand how how much to tell people and how much you have to kind of absorb yourself so we've learned about the signs of, of an asshole boss how do we or i said asshole then <laughs> we learned about the signs of being an asshole boss how do we stop being an asshole now pj's got this really simple framework what he calls brave smart kind i mean any business owner knows that your company starts to live your values and what people don't know is that you live and die by your values. Very frequently do people fail because there's a lack of values. Typically, people fail because there's an excess of value. So think about yourself being too kind. Well, if you're too kind, you're going to get walked over. Think about yourself being too smart. If you think you know everything in the room, are you going to listen to others? Are you going to open your mind to other perspectives? Think about being too brave. Are you taking too many risks without enough thought, without enough considering the people? So it's really this trifecta of do you understand how you overcome, how you critically think, and how you treat others and yourself. And if you live in that balanced space, knowing your values, there's so many parts of your business that start to fall into place anyway. If you see it as three buckets of the brave, smart, and kind, the beautiful part is it encapsulates every single value that's on the planet. There's not a value. I've done this exercise a billion times. There's not a single value, value that doesn't fit into how we overcome, how we critically think, or how we treat others and ourselves. And so because of that, we just take the time to define it because we understand it. Gary Lineker and the BBC. Do you see what I mean there? And, and, and again, PJ's explained it so beautifully. Is that if you're if you're going one way too far or the other, if you're too much of something or not something of something else, or you're not authentically reflecting your values in your own behaviors and decisions, then it's not, there's going to be anarchy in your organization. That isn't going to, that isn't going to float anymore. Those, those days of that type of control, command, leadership are, are gone. Um, and I love what, what PJ says there is, 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 and it often comes down to this again, it, it's just having that balance. 
Yeah, so obviously your key is to be to have good values, but also be aware of those values, as Rob explains. So just to keep going a little bit deeper, there's two types of self-awareness. There's internal self-awareness. I am aware of my values, my mindset, my goals, and how the things I do align with that. There's external self-awareness, which is how aware am I about how the three of you are experiencing me in this moment. They're not correlated, right? So you can have very high internal self-awareness and be completely, you know, like you can be walking around like Mr. Magoo, right? Like have no idea what's going on. Uh-huh. And the opposite is also true. Like I can be absolutely aware of how the three of you experience me and I can have no idea what my values are. And so just for folks out there, it's like, really digging into, I mean, and self-awareness is proven as like one of the top leadership skills, the top skills for success, along with emotional intelligence, which they're kind of correlated. But for folks out there, if you want to start doing this work, self-awareness and emotional intelligence are really the, the foundation. The starting point. Clearly a, a value shared between between ourselves um, and Rob and Susan. Self-awareness is, is, you know, a really incredible place to start improving your leadership capability and effect, effectiveness um, and not be an arsehole. The interesting thing as well about self-awareness that Rob brought up there is that one, we're not always very good at being self-aware. We think we are, but we're not always very good at it. And two, my my understanding of me is going to be very different to Al's understanding of me or Rob's understanding of me or Susan's understanding of me. And one thing that we always recommend to our clients when they come to us and they want to explore either leadership behaviors or team strengths in, in terms of using a psychometric to help them is to look at something called a 360. And that's where we're going to gather information from what the line manager thinks of that member of staff, what their senior leader thinks of that member of staff, what their customer thinks, what their stakeholders think, what their teams think. Because often there are there are discrepancies, as Rob says, between what we think we're good at and what we think our strengths are and what other people see them as. And that's similar if you're, you know, you're a leader. You can do your own self-awareness and reflection, introspection in terms of various psychometrics. But if you really, really want to know if you're an asshole boss or not, you're going to have to ask somebody else. So not only do you need to be self-aware, but you need to have confidence in what you're doing. And if you don't feel you're doing a good job, when you aren't confident, then your team can pick up on this. Here's Susan. Yeah, like I think that that can leave a leader in a chronic and constant state of insecurity, right? Because they're always feeling like they're not enough and therefore they're always going to be destabilized in their energy, right? So they could be saying the exact same things, but depending on whether or not they're getting their needs met in adaptive ways or maladaptive ways, that's what's going to carry the most weight in terms of how that messaging lands with their people. So whereas we work with our leaders to make sure that they have intrinsically based strategies where they know where to go inside of themselves at all times, no matter the conditions externally, so that they actually can be on strong, stable ground in their nervous system, right? Which then opens them up to more of a growth mindset, right? Where it's like, of course, this is the whole purpose of this leadership thing. It's to grow and to evolve and to realize max potential, which is not a motivation that's not coming from a deficit, right? It's not coming from, oh my God, I'm not enough. I have to get there so I can be enough. It's like, 
I got all this value intrinsically that I know I validated that I feel in, in my confidence in my nervous system that starts to set that leader up to be able to go and grow sustainably and realize max potential and impact. So this idea of lack of confidence, lack of self-awareness, and then the lack of actually core values that PJ talks about means you kind of have to fall back on who you think you should be, which is not only really bad because it's incongruent, but also having to play that part every single day can have a dramatic impact on your mental health, as Rob explains. When I got into work, I was like, hey, I got to be this high-performing engineer because this is who I am. My self-concept was, I'm a reliable Rob. This is who I am, the guy who delivers. I got into work. I saved him a bunch of money. And my boss was like, hey, I don't want this because it makes me look bad if you're doing something that I should have done before. This was catastrophic to my self-concept. If I couldn't deliver, who am I? This is where you get into these deep pockets where I went, which was like, well, if I don't know who I am, does my life have purpose? Is there meaning in the world? And then ultimately almost led me to taking my own life. As we can construct our way out of this, that's when we can start changing the narrative. Like literally, I would have kicked my grandma down the stairs to win a game, right? I say this is a joke. Um, but like, it's, it's serious. Like I would have done anything to win. It doesn't matter what I would, I just, I would do anything to win. And now it's, it's changed. It's not about like doing anything to win. And I still, I still love winning, but it's about the way that that win lands in your experience. I don't need it like a breath of fresh air. I know who I am. I know that I'm not like I, my identity is not just this fact that I deliver. I know who I am. And that's the transition point. And Buddhists talk about life is suffering. And really what they mean is it's life is thirst. And once they talk about, but as they work about transcendence, it's like once you can let go of desire you don't you no longer need that next drink and for us it's not that we don't want you to perform well and all actually the data is correlated that you will perform better but okay. it's about once we can realize our self-concept is not tied to our performance then it's not about like pushing you down so i can look better or or um you know taking credit for your work or uh you know, having to be the smartest person in the room and telling everyone what to do instead of just allowing folks to become better. And that's the transition from asshole boss to great leader. Yeah, I think what Rob said there, and he was, he, he, he is quite open. He's got, there's a great talk he did in Australia, which I think Susan referenced earlier, um, around the, the point where he did try to take his own life. And that was just this incongruence of like, if I can't be the person who I wanted to be, then who am I? And you just have this loss. And I think that there are so many leaders out there who go, I want to be this type of leader because that's who I believe I should be. Rather than actually just saying, hang on a minute, what are my strengths? Going back to PJ, brave, smart, kind. What are my strengths? What am I good at? That's how I lead, not 
by having some, not by being this amazing, you know, like really famous person who fires the bottom 10% regardless, regardless of, of how well they've done. Yeah, and I wonder if that is also where, you know, we, we you know, a big source of the great resignation was people suddenly find themselves in a, you know, in a world where their, you know, their physical health and their, their you know, the mortality was being seriously brought into into question. At that point, you know, thinking, are my own personal values out of sync with the way that I'm expected to behave or have to behave in in this environment? And yeah, it went, it took an extreme extreme route to to doing that and quitting their job I say extreme route you know Rob stayed in an environment like that and it almost killed him um so yeah there's lots of of pressure that we can put on ourselves to to act and think and, and feel it a particular way um that's also a, a phenomenon called moral burnout we're in an environment where our, our values are are misaligned with the, the world around us and, and we've talked at, at length about burnout and the physical and, and mental health challenges that it can bring so PJ explains that it's not just having no values or not knowing what your values are that can make you fail as a leader. It's also having an extreme value of some kind. Here's PJ. I don't believe that people fail from a lack of values. I feel that people fail from an extreme value. If you get walked over, it's because you're valuing that kind value too much. If what you do is if you're an overthinker, analysis paralysis, well, your smart value has gone too far. If you take too many risks and you don't aren't able to hold back or don't have balance or something like that, your brave value has been taken too far. Ambitious, stubborn, um, intention uh, can be manipulative. Uh, all of the things are in extremes. Dial them in the extreme of the other direction, you find out what you truly stand for. This might sound a, a bit familiar what PJ is talking about here from our um, How Not to Be a Psychopath um, episode. Uh, which talked about dark side personality traits and again how they are absolute fundamental strengths until they're taken to the extreme and can be hugely maladaptive and destructive not only to ourselves but to those around us. So as it comes back to these values, if you use PJ's idea of brave, smart, kind, then you can easily see what's out of kilter. So perhaps if you're not hitting targets, you're not being brave enough. If your team is working all hours to get everything done, you're maybe not being smart enough. It sounds easy, but a lot of companies have already established their, their values. So PJ suggests that going back to the basics can be really helpful. For a lot of existing companies, they already have their values in place. So then from that, we say, all right, you've got your values. Have you defined them? And they're like, yeah, it's on our poster. I'm like, no, okay, slow down. <laughs> Just because it's on a poster. Have you spoken to your people about this? And when they say, no, we haven't, then the exercise goes we go around to all the sites and we sit down and we talk to the people and say, all right, one of your values, and this is one of Alexis's, is take care of people. It's easy enough. It's not rocket science. Lots of businesses say take care of people. What does that mean to your teams? And then when they start to walk through that, then they start to see that across their sites, they've got sites, uh, 18 sites all over the world, uh, about, I think, 1,800 staff. Then they start to see the patterns in which they lead. They start to see the patterns in which whether someone's in Korea or someone's in France or someone's in the U.S., these are the state ways in which we want to take care of our people. For the companies that haven't done that, local culture can take over. Um, the issues that they start to see from site to site differ. That can be a problem because then you're trying to put out so many different fires. So from there, it's like, all right, you've got that. You have the definition now. What are the actions you want to take? And then we map out an action plan from that. Uh, the value framework. They need to know that 
if the people align with their values, they're going to be very loyal. They're going to want to show up for work. They're going to want to create their actions for that. If they don't align with your values, you might have to let them go. And that might suck. And at the same time, if you want your team showing up for you, if you don't live by those values, the people who don't agree with them or don't care, they stay. And the people who do care about them and you're not living up to them, they leave, which is a strange dynamic that you don't want all the crappy people staying and all the ones who who live a values-based uh, existence to leave. Such fantastic advice from, from PJ here. And I think this is a thing where sometimes the science and practice of, of people and culture of business psychology can sometimes get lost in translation. We don't have values because we put them on a poster or write them on our wall and, and that gives people, that's what's going to give people that sense of purpose and reason in their world is knowing what our values are. No, what those values, as PJ rightly said, need to be translated into behaviours and there needs to be consensus around this behaviours. What what are the things that, that look great, that define this value in terms of how we think, feel and behave at work? What are the things that are completely unacceptable? And one of my favourite psychologists, John Amici, actually defines workplace culture as the, the worst behaviours tolerated within a company. And I think that that kind of just sums up everything PJ has, has said there, that, you know, having the values isn't enough. You have to live and breathe them. And again, as well, that ties into when people want to recruit for culture fit. We've talked about this before. It's a bad idea unless you have the sophistication of values that PJ is talking about. I will leave a link to the episode in the show notes if you want to know what the hell I'm talking about. So this idea of being self-aware um, is something which Rob thinks is really, really important. First off, if you're thinking that you're an asshole, it's a good sign. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not that I'm not saying because you're an asshole, but it's like literally a lot of the folks who are thinking this are the folks that we're most worried about are not thinking this. They don't have the self-awareness to even see that it could potentially be them. And if they do actually think they are, they're shutting it down with their protection. Right? I cannot allow myself to feel like an asshole because I have these gaps in my mindset. Now, in terms of how to start, I mean, we have a coaching program, the Leadership Launchpad, to help folks get there. But it's very much this, and we talk about this on our podcast, is very much the difference between horizontal and vertical work. Thank uh-huh. you also to David Irvine for sharing that verbiage with us. But horizontal work is... Hey, I got, I'm watching a new TED Talk. I'm listening to a new podcast. I'm reading a new book. I'm reading another article. These things are good. There is value to doing this. You can get new perspectives. You can learn a bunch of stuff. But there's also benefit to doing the deeper vertical work, which is starting to excavate your mindset, your psychology, understanding if, like, what is driving you? Are you trying to be like reliable Rob? Are you trying to show up in this specific way to signal to other people that you're good enough or you they should like you or that they'll accept you or that they'll love you or that you're powerful or what are these things that you're doing that are being driven in these unsustainable ways or maybe sustainable ways? It's funny because all of our de- guests talk about the reasons behind wanting to be a leader. Both independently brought up Donald Trump. Let's hear what Rob says about him. Donald Trump, uh, you know, like these folks are that way. Now, is it necessarily they're bad people? Probably not. They're probably just very highly traumatized folks that rose to the position that they have, or they could be sociopaths. 
Um, but those are basically a lot of what I look at, right? And it could be even coaches on TV, like, you know, like you often you see coaches in sports yelling at their players or yelling at the uh-huh. referee or like these are very much, you know, abusive narcissists for a lot of the part, right? Um, so that's where, I mean, we see it in TV. Now the opposite is starting to become more true. Like we're seeing, you know, like uh, I think Ted Lasso, I've never watched it, but I hear from everyone <laughs> that he's a very interesting character as a leader. Uh, we're seeing stuff like from Brene Brown and Simon Sinek around, you know, bringing this, you know, courageous leadership to the workplace and vulnerability and love. PJ also agrees that Donald Trump makes an interesting case study in the world of leadership. You can look at a load of leaders throughout history <laughs> who have been ambitious. And I could throw it to you and say, was Nelson Mandela ambitious? Damn right he was. <laughs> right. Donald Trump ambitious. Damn right he is. How do you go about, how do you live that value? And that's why we say some people succeed by it and some people fail by it is can you stay in the positive space? So if ambition is one of your, your values, great. How do you act from that ambition? And from Nelson Mandela's, he, he put a point of, I'm going to respect people no matter where they come from, what their background is. Right. If it's someone like Donald Trump, Donald Trump, he doesn't respect people. So it's kind of like where he lives those values and the actions that you come from them. So if someone's building their company, they say, I want to sell this to Google. Well, guess what Google's also interested in, <laughs> right? Is they're also interested in, in hiring teams that get along together. So if you have a bunch of a-holes who are working for the company just to sell it and they don't give a F about the rest of the world, let it burn. Well, that might not come with a very good publicity. Maybe Google doesn't want them. Maybe they look at that leadership team because I know that's something investors look at. And say, tell me about your investor team or uh, your leadership team. And if it's backstabbing to make a buck, people don't want to buy that company. We learned a few weeks ago what investors or what VC investors are looking for in 2023. All comes down to investing in people, not investing in businesses. So brilliant there to hear PJ echo that sentiment. Absolutely, absolutely. Susan agrees as well. It's down to the reason and motivation behind wanting to be seen as a leader. Leaders who rise to positions of power, you often think like, what was that motive? You know, (laughs) there's a difference between the leader that has been very passionate about something. And then that took them places in their credibility and their expertise. Right. But you know, the leaders who wanted, wanted that position of power, like that's a very different motivation. Oftentimes that comes from the deficits, right. Of like needing that sense of safety outside of them in the form of the validation. So the more power, the more validation. Susan's pointed out probably one of the the most frequent routes to leadership there is actually progressing well in your own your own you know realms of your own job and and role and getting promoted into a management position. That's how I got promoted into my first management position. But it it does mean that you know we're if we're promoted in position because we're passionate about the job, it might not necessarily be that we're passionate about people leadership. And on that level, it really is something we need to consider. Going back to that um, neuroscience today I mentioned earlier and, and kind of the traits that they found of an effective leader that fosters this this trust. There's kind of, I mean, there's a whole list now. I'll leave the link to the article in the show notes, but the main ones they talked about really was kind of giving people, translating these values into purpose. 
um, or in terms of like purpose and values, they probably work both ways. You know, what is the the mission of the organization? How does it fit in with our values? How does it enable us to live and breathe our values? And what's a wider impact that we have on our customers, on our community, and potentially, you know, on our, on the world as well? And with that reason, making sure it's tangible for people within the roles that that they have and within those roles that they have some form of discretion in terms of how they go about that work. They have some form of a control because you trust them to have that autonomy in their role. Secondly, is really being very intentional about developing great relationships um, and, you know, developing empathy. And I think intent is the key there. Some of the, the kind of the backlash we saw with hybrid working, remote working during the pandemic and even now is that leaders are finding it harder to communicate with their teams and build these authentic relationships because it feels these interactions feel forced. And that for me just kind of stems from, I think, leaders who, the majority of leaders have been lazy in, in how they structure these interactions, that they're passive, that they happen whenever, that they're around the water cooler, around the kettle. Um, the point is that great leaders are intentional about developing great relationships. And that's why often these great leaders don't seem to struggle with remote work as much as others. And finally, and actually the one that was came up number one in terms of what you can do as a leader to build this trust, which then translates into high levels of performance, is recognition, celebration success, selling people's, celebrating people's achievements, but importantly, helping them understand why you were particularly impressed with the, the behaviors, those value-driven behaviors that they enacted to achieve the result they did. And it's that positive reinforcement that is really going to embed those values in your leadership and help you reap all the performance benefits. I just think it, it really does depend on how strong the leader is in terms of being able to engage their people. And that to me is where all the leadership 2.0 soft skills, that's where that lies, right? Like in terms of seeing your people, hearing your people, celebrating your people, giving your people feedback. Like if you're showing up like that already as a leader, you've got that strong baseline of trust and psychological safety. Your people are going to work with you, especially if your people want to work from home and have the capability to work from home excellently. Oh, totally. I mean, Gallup has for the top five drivers for employee engagement, one is giving your people purpose, two is developing your people, three is being a caring manager or them feeling like you're a caring manager, having ongoing conversations about the person and their development and purpose and all these things. And then finally is the focus on strength. None of these needs you to be next to the person or across the table from the person. And just to connect those dots there, what Rob was saying about Gallup's meta-analysis, and it is an interesting data set to look at, but in terms of the benefits for the individual, much, much higher levels of, of fulfillment in our work. And that translates directly into our, our well-being and our, our physical health outcomes as well. And for a business, the rewards include higher productivity, better quality products and increased profitability. To name a few, the list is very long on the commercial benefits of high employee engagement. So this idea of not knowing yourself, not knowing your values, not being very self-aware, you know, it can lead to you being an arsehole boss, but it can also lead to actually something a bit worse, as Rob explains. The World Health Organization has a paper from 2016 that says that work killed 1.88 million people. And it's not from just suicide. It's, it's overwork, it's stress, it's complications from all these things. And often what it is, is 
One, it's the workplaces that we're in, the 65.1% of bosses who are destructive to our health, and then also just our own beliefs about who we need to be in these workplaces. Like you can have a great boss, but if you don't know how to shut yourself off, if you have to be the guy who delivers or reliable Rob, you're going to go all the time. It's quite unbelievable as a, as a psychologist. I think that people still, some people still question the relationship between our work environment and our, our working experiences and our physical and mental health. There is so much data and research and literature going back decades and decades of of these relationships. And, and one that I actually read recently, which was a study published um, this year in the Journal of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. And it's the first to establish a clear link between management style and employee heart health. So employees who said their managers were passive, inconsiderate and incommunicative were more likely to suffer from heart attacks, according to this Swedish study uh, that looked at more than 3,000 people. Um, so yeah, it, it, having a, a, an arsehole boss can literally give us a heart attack. So that's what can happen when you get it wrong. But when you get it right, when everyone is, feels like they're playing for the same team, if everyone feels like there's energy in the room, we're all trying to do the same thing, then it just works. PJ used this analogy of playing blackjack, which he's very good at, to explain the whole idea of everyone being on board. And so when I would go and play, those tables where everybody's rooting for each other and everyone's playing in the same way, fighting the same cause. We know we're all against the dealer. In blackjack, you're against the dealer, not against each other. You can all win all the time. Play by the rules. And you come together and you win. The sales teams that I've worked for, when they've got the right culture, when they pump each other up in the morning, when they high five for a good sales, when they give someone else a lead because they know they're having a hard day. How are you kind? Well, we pick each other up. Great. How are you smart? We go through the research. We take the time to learn. How are you brave? Well, one of the ways that we're brave is we're persistent. We keep going at it. And so it, because that balances with the kind value of when we're a team, if someone else gets down, we're picking them up too. Then they do better. They have motivation to show up for your work. And it, you know this. Either If you're a good salesperson, you're either a great actor or you've got a team who picks you up and you're just an enthusiastic person. You know, Find ways to, to establish how you treat each other how you want to think and how you're going to overcome your challenges, do that as a team and those are the ones that succeed. I'm not sure there is any better feeling as a leader, as a manager, as an employee, when everything just seems to be working and everything's in sync and you just feel like you're invincible. It's such an empowering feeling and has brought me so much joy and fulfillment, both as an employee, I've experienced it as an employee and as a leader. It is the most, I'm, I'm feeling, I can feel my heart rate accelerating now just, just remembering it it's such an incredible high to be in that environment where you've you've got each other's backs you're working towards something incredible and performance wise you're absolutely smashing it i totally agree i used to be in a sales environment where we used to sell advertising um over the phone and there was this one girl in the corner one lady in the corner um who would always kill her targets very quietly by about thursday and then spend all of friday just getting us <laughs> deals and then she'd put them on on the board under our name and then we'd all have to work out monday morning we'd have to ring up and try and get those deals back to pay her back but yeah it was just that feeling of she could have gone home but she didn't she stayed there we all worked together we we're all in it together so yeah. yes I, I love it and i think i think one of the things you know as a leader you can get very reminiscent for times like this i, I myself am very reminiscent and 
and look back at those as being great times. And I think maybe they can be in danger, but we try and recreate those if, it, if it's lost either because we've, you know, some people have left or natural attrition or growth. And we can sometimes feel that we need to get back to where we were because that's when it was working. But, you know, it, it's an evolution of what's going to work now, you know, as of, as of today, as of, you know, March, 2023, what does it, what does it look like to be brave, smart and kind? And I'm sure PJ would, would agree that what that looks like today is probably very different to what it looked like five years ago. We've talked a lot about values. We've talked a lot about incongruence. We've talked a lot about how our values and behaviors affect others. And we've also talked about how as leaders, this this incongruence in values or not knowing how to apply these values in a way that is sustainable in the environments that we're in can have significant impacts on our mental health. So I asked Duncan, what can leaders do better to invest in themselves and in their own well-being? Yeah, so I'll start off with, uh, and this comes from literature or the working systems change leadership, right? So if you look at people who are profound, they, they change the world in profound ways. There's a really famous loosely paraphrase uh, saying that Gandhi would say, right? Be the change you want to see in the world. Be the change you want to see in the world. So change starts from within. All change starts from within. We have fancy change management processes that we would want to control the change on the outside. But the reality is we want to change us first. And there is a concept um, that we call congruency, right? So maybe the flip side of it is true, and, and people will be familiar with this, is the notion of imposter syndrome. I know it's a really popular buzzword right now, but the idea of imposter syndrome is we have these different parts in us, these different identities. A part of me is a mom, a part of me is, wants to be a director, an executive, or a professional. A part of me wants to you know, be an athlete, a part of me wants to be super healthy. And all these different parts have different values and all have different belief systems, and they, and they conflict with each other. Right. And so when it comes to well-being is we have to solve that. Right. And so in order for us, for we to solve that, what I say is you got to solve that within yourself. So if you're a leader, you want to be a successful leader, then you have to go through life with congruence. And from a more of a metaphysical lens or a spiritual lens, you always hear the notion of beingness, right? Being present. That we're human beings. Right. But language has it's language is practical, right? Language has a practical expression to it. And so we're learning how to be. And so part of beingness, by the way, is well-being. Right? So the world's in there. Right? It's not wellness. There's wellness. If you do these activities, right? Let's do a yoga class. It's some breathing exercises. It's journal. It's walk. It's, it's you know, that's wellness. It's like an activity outside of us. Well-being, right? Leveraging the word being is a, is a self-encompassing notion. It take them straight from the language. I didn't invent it, right? It's straight from the language of what it means is it takes well and puts being together. And so leaders will have to learn what it takes. So one, burnout's a little bit of extreme. Obviously, not everyone's going to be burning out. Um, but burnout does offer some really useful lessons, right? So if you ask anybody that's gone through burnout successfully the other side, they go through not just a transformation, but what I like to call like a very transcendental moment of their life, right? Because, you know, when we learn about consciousness patterns, like you'll learn like there's, you know, there are groups of people in the beginning, they're like, oh, I want to break the status quo, be very disruptive. And you'll introduce things like agility and want things now. And I want the gold watch now, like things that we've both experienced. Right. And then one of the, the sort of offshoots of that, the lessons in sort of that paradigm of go, 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 everything now, uh, fast and agile and lean and flat and all those words. Right. Is what's the point? I don't like what is, I think the key where that came, came out for Gen X as popular today in leadership is what if I feel unsuccessful 
even though I'm successful. Duncan mentioned there how we can have different identities and, and different senses of self depending on on the environment that we're in. And that's absolutely true. And it's not to say that for positive well-being, we need to completely amalgamate all of, all of these identities in, into one. We are different people with our friends and our family than we may be with our, our work colleagues or our kids. But the the thread the the thread that runs through those identities are our values. And as Duncan says, when we're not living our values, or when we think we're living our values, and then that that success comes, and we don't feel the joy from it or the fulfillment from it, that's because our, our values are misaligned. There's a really great exercise um, called Vitals, which helps you to explore what your your values are, your interests, your your personality and your temperament. So you can have something on paper. So when you're experiencing some kind of emotional or cognitive dissonance or, or some kind of psychological discomfort, you can reflect back on it and think, what environments am I currently in that may be, well, not forcing me, but I, I am in a place where I need to compromise what my values are and there will be times where we do um but if we do that for too long that's where it's really going to start to impact our our well-being so I will leave that exercise in the show notes uh for you to for you to try and use it and reflect on We've talked a lot in this episode about reflection, introspection, understanding our own behaviors. There are various different ways to, to go about that. We've mentioned a, a few in this episode, including the um, the emotional intelligence psychometric you can do, uh, the Hogan assessments you can do, and also the 360. So if you're looking for a practical tool, we will leave all of those in the show notes. So a big thank you to our guests today. First of all, Duncan So, the founder of Transcend the Hustle. Um, if you want to hear more from Duncan, you can check him out over on LinkedIn and you can go to his website, transcendthehustle.com. For more information on Susan, the founder and CEO of Elite High Performance and Rob, who is a leadership coach at the same company, do again, check them out on LinkedIn and connect with them. We will leave the links to both of their profiles in the show notes. You can also check out their website, elitehighperformance.com. And of course, their podcast, Leadership Launchpad Project, which Al and I have been on, actually. We have, really good. Yeah, really, really great podcast and a really great resource for leaders. So do check that out. And finally, thank you to PJ Brady from Brave Smart Kind Company. Um, I think he gave us so many practical tips there and really brought to life what it means to, to live and, and work our values. For more information on PJ, again, we will leave a link to his LinkedIn profile in the show notes. You can also check out bravesmartkind.com. So hopefully now you know what an arsehole boss looks like, whether you're going to be an arsehole boss and what you can do about it if you do find yourself being an arsehole boss. Chances are you are an arsehole boss from time to time. I think we all are. I think we all I are. I think that, and as Rob said, the fact that you're going, oh God, am I? means that you're not a narcissist because that wouldn't even cross your mind if you were, you're in a position where you can absolutely reflect and, and learn and adopt the behaviors that are going to make you more effective. So get in touch for more advice on, on how you can, you can approach that. I'll we'll be back next week with another episode where we are talking about teams, how to build high performing teams and the, uh, the funny, the funny and interesting phenomenon that is called the superstar effect. Mm, looking forward to it. See you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 